Um, good morning, everybody. Please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So last night, I had the um, honor of attending the uh, last performance of Peter and the Starcatcher. Did anybody go ahead and catch the play? Yeah, um, Chris is in the back, uh, but it was um, a play that Andrew West uh, had the lead in. It was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, if you get a chance to uh, congratulate Andrew, please do so, because uh, it, was, it was definitely something for him to be proud of and for their, um, their school. Um, I actually had a little bit of experience with theater myself when I was in high school, and the thing that, um, I really, that really struck me about this particular play was how um, the community that was up on that stage. This was a, what, what's called like a, an ensemble cast. Um, so it was kind of almost like Godspell, if you've ever seen Godspell, in the fact that um, it, it really wasn't, even though uh, the, the story was about uh, Peter Pan, and uh, it was kind of like a prequel to Peter Pan, it was, it was really clever, um, but <clears throat> the story itself and the, the production itself actually really had no main stars. The, the entire cast was up on stage, the, almost the entire play, um, and really did this phenomenal job <clears throat> of responding to each other. And I was really struck by that, that <clears throat> one person over here might say something. They might have an emotion. They might have um, a, uh, a, a declaration to make on stage. And then because of the thing that that person said, this person on the other side of the stage needs to react. And they need to react appropriately. They need to be, react in such a way that is responsive and reactive to the thing that was said in an appropriate way. Because if, I, if, if, if somebody says something to the effect like, I'm really sad, and then somebody over here goes, yeah, you know, that would be an inappropriate way to respond to the thing that was said. So you're constantly trying to pay attention. Um, what do they say? That acting is uh, 80% reacting or whatever it is. Um, the idea is that as a community on stage, they are responsive to what's going on. Um, and I was looking for a way to start this sermon, and I came home last night, and I, well, that's it. Because the text that we have today, it, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult topic. If you've spent any time um, in, the, in the scripture for this week, um, it's something that um, is very dear to my heart. Um, not only is this particular topic something that um, has affected me deeply, uh, as um, personally, has affected my family very deeply, but has also affected um, people in my life, friends, um, in a very profound way, in ways that, that will um, have lasting effects. Um, and I want us to think about that, that as we go into this text, um, my prayer would be, as Matthew said, that this would be a safe place, that this would be a place that we together um, have, uh, we feel each other's pain and we enter in. Um, Andy Stanley likes to say, we as a community, we walk toward the messes. Um, and that would be my prayer for us this morning. So today we're continuing with this track through 1 Corinthians with a passage that kind of builds on the foundation that Paul has already established in regards to sexuality and marriage. As Jesus says last week, Paul wants to show us that marriage, in some kind of mysterious fashion, reflects something of God's new created order into the world. A few weeks ago, I spoke about how we're called to glorify God 
with our bodies. Now, it might stand to reason that dedicating your life to Christ could be seen as some sort of spiritual experience, uh, something that happens to your soul with little effect on on your actual physical existence or how you live your life. But Paul has no time for that. Sure, he does say in 2 Corinthians that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. But that's all the more reason to take seriously what he's saying in 1 Corinthians when he exhorts us to glorify God with our bodies. Now, in regards to our sexuality, there's two ways of going about that. We could glorify God through celibacy. That is an honorable and godly calling and and clearly the one that Paul preferred. Um, But if we don't have power over our passions, as he says, then the right expression is marriage. Um, How we glorify God in the context of marriage is through giving our bodies to our spouses. Remember, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So, gentlemen, in the realm of our marriages, the best way for us to glorify God with our bodies is to be the best darn husband we can be sacrificially pouring ourselves out to our wives. And ladies, the best way for you to glorify God with your bodies in terms of your marriage is to sacrificially pour yourself out into your husbands. So biblically speaking, there's something so precious about the design of marriage, um, the two coming together to become one. Creation and new creation bookends the Bible. Um, At either side of the biblical narrative, um, there is marriage. The coming together of man and woman in Genesis 2 points towards the coming together of heaven and earth in Revelation 21. Our marriages are a taste of what's to come, a reflection of the Imago Dei. Now, it might not feel like that all the time. Sometimes it might taste a little bitter. But we may experience firsthand the need for God's ultimate consummation when we come face to face with our own frailty and imperfections. The truth is that it's actually really hard work pouring yourself out sacrificially. It's the kind of thing that might sound great in church, but then when the rubber of our beliefs meets the road of life, we can be quick to lose hope. We can be quick to assume that the severity of our own situations will not taste fruitful, this side of Revelation 21. And our text for this morning shows Paul offering some rather practical advice on a situation that many commentators call tricky. Tricky, tricky. Lindsay, I'm saying. Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. By the way, when he says, I, not the Lord, What that means is it's something that Jesus didn't specifically address. That if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, a brother and sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Now, it would be a tremendous mistake to assume that the culture of the ancient world was comparable to, let's say, the world of the 1950s. 
the world in which our parents grew up in attached, uh, at least the Western word, attached a stigma to divorce, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, Amy and I are watching this uh, show on Netflix right now called The Crown. It's fantastic. It's about um, Queen Elizabeth's II ascension to the throne of England. And their attention to detail is remarkable. And one of the things that I've noticed was that at several points of the show, divorce um, is brought up. And there's a sense of just horror on the faces of the British royalty when it's revealed that someone in the family might even be friendly with somebody who is connected to a divorce. And in our own country, divorce was something that was as tragic as it was rare. But in Paul's day, divorce was actually fairly common, and remarriage was encouraged. So if I've recently become a Christian in Corinth, and my spouse is sitting at home wondering what I'm doing with all those weird people, wouldn't it stand to reason that my association with an unholy person would make me unholy? After all, didn't Paul just say a few chapters ago that it's necessary to drive out the wicked person? Why would I be in a marriage with a person who didn't share my convictions about Christ? I certainly wouldn't want to have sex with such a person. After all, I want to glorify, my God, glorify God with my body, right? Which, as you just said, Paul, is Christ's body. I'm a child of light. Why would I want to collude with the darkness? So obviously I should divorce my wife, as is common in our culture, on the basis of spiritual incompatibility. Not to mention, as a man, I can expect that the children is going to be given to me. This spiritual incompatibility thing really works, right? Because not only am I not going to have sex with this person, I certainly don't want them raising my kids. You know, Paul, a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. And Paul's writing and saying, nope! Nope, definitely not. This gets to the wider point of what we'll get to next week, that we must glorify God in whatever situation he calls us to. If you're celibate, great. Glorify God through celibacy. If you don't have power over your passions, glorify God through marriage. Do you really think that abandoning your marriage will help you, your spouse, or your children, regardless of whether they know Christ? The most important thing that we could do for our marriage is to work to be the best husband or wife that we can possibly be. Is this really so far from the message we've given so far? The first section of 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters, talk about how to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. Back in Romans, we read while, that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were weak, Christ died for us. He poured out himself sacrificially on the cross. Is it really so odd that he would ask us to do the same for the people that we love? But again, are those words that just sound good in church? Stanley Harawas has this incredible quote that really brought me to my knees this week. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. That if we look closely enough, we're going to find just the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. Get this. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. We'll always marry the wrong person. 
We'll always marry the wrong person if we're expecting that person to behave in a way that they have no chance of being. If we're expecting that person to be somebody they have no chance of being. I simply don't have the goods to be Amy's savior. I don't have the goods to be your husband, at least not in some perfect one that's going to fulfill her every need. You see, it's all about where we begin the conversation. If we start out thinking that marriage is about self-fulfillment, the marriage will fail. If we start out thinking that marriage is the most important relationship in our lives, that marriage will never live up to those expectations. If we start out thinking that marriage is about our own sexual gratification, that marriage will fail. See, when we make marriage the center of our life and then that marriage fails, we have nowhere to go. But if we go back to the start and begin from a place that says that marriage is actually a type of the archetypal marriage between Jesus and his bride, then the starting place is not self-fulfillment. The starting place is self-sacrifice. I was reminded this week, Amy said the quote that she likes is, well, we are warned not to believe the lie that marriage should be 50-50. Divorce is what splits things up 50-50. We're called to give 100%. The common passage for this is Ephesians 5. We're familiar with it, but it's so powerful it's worth reading again. And what's the trick to remembering the marriage portion of Ephesians 5 is to not start at verse 22, as many of your books, uh, Bibles, are going to mark off. The point is to start at verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are in the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as the Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is Savior, just as the church is subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves him also. For no one ever hates their own body, but he nourishes nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined um, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and the wife should respect her husband. See, I'm called to die for her. That's what, the, that's what I get. Love my wife the way Christ loved the church. I'm supposed to die for her. And this is the thing that really struck me the first few years of my marriage is the truth is that whether or not she dies for me is inconsequential. If the center of my marriage is my wife, then she will inevitably fail me and that marriage will crumble. If the center of my marriage is Jesus, then sinfulness and stubbornness and pride of my spouse is not only going to be accepted, it's going to be expected. For while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on the cross. Putting Jesus at the center of your marriage will offer you tremendous freedom 
Because now all of your hopes and dreams are wrapped up in a person that will not fail you. You're then free to see your spouse in the hands of the Almighty. You're free to want the best for them, to want Christ for them. And if they're at a place of doubt or unbelief or seeking, you're free to trust that God has that situation well in hand as well. Please don't misunderstand me. I realize I'm not talking in abstracts. This topic is one that hits close to home. It's affected me. It's affected my friends people I love in ways that we'll feel for the rest of our lives. See, one person or perhaps a group of people in a particular family are, having, um, are experiencing God in a certain way, and others just don't seem to be having the same kind of experience because they have different ex- understandings. They have different questions. Their doubts manifest themselves in different ways because we're all wired differently, and this causes conflict. And that conflict will lead to choices. But the thing that we need to remember is that our choices, how we love one another, those choices have consequences. And for many of us, this will be on full display this week during Thanksgiving. We're having Thanksgiving at our house this year with my mother and my brothers. Last year we had Thanksgiving at my father's house with my brothers. Now, I love Thanksgiving. For me, Thanksgiving is a competitive sport. It's a day that combines all of my favorite things. Thankfulness to God and feasting and family and football and American history. And I'm a traditionalist. I like turkey. I like stuffing. I like mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie, and as little vegetables as possible. I like to bowl Thanksgiving right down the middle. Pitch it right down the center. I like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on in the morning. I like football on in the afternoon. I like an evening movie. I like an open house where you can come and relax in a house filled with the smell of cooking food. And when your grandma smacks your hand and says, get out of the kitchen, I even like that. It's fiddling. It's endearing. And then I sit down to the dinner table and I look at my family for who I am so thankful and grateful that they're in my life, that God has chosen these people to be my family. I'm so grateful for that and honored. But every year when I sit at that table, I'm reminded that I haven't eaten a meal with both my mother and my father in over 25 years. Again, please don't misunderstand me. This isn't complaining or this isn't even offering commentary on my parents' divorce. That's ancient history. This is me acknowledging and lamenting the fact that this divorce had consequences, not just for me, but for Amy, for James, because our choices have consequences. There are stakes to this game. Actually, according to data just released this past Thursday, we can be thankful that divorce is at a 35-year low. But of course, part of that may be that there are less marriages in the first place. But let's go back. Let's go back to that community aspect. Let's go back to that Um, point about this being a safe place, that you are not alone in this. As we struggle with this, as we have friends that struggle with this, that's why we have a community. And we can't presume to know what an individual situation is like unless we take the time to invest in our family. And when I say family, I mean the community of believers. 
Sure, it's going to get difficult at times. But do we have place in our community for the love that is going to be required to deal with real-life situations? Because as painful as it is, you see this when looking at Jesus' words on the topic. As painful as it is, because of the hardness of heart, divorce is, an, is a part of life. I, uh, when I was doing premarital counseling, um, one of the weeks that we did, we did it at Grace, but one of the weeks that um, during the session Jason and Mary actually led, and one of the powerful uh, images that they gave was of ships. It was as if, imagine some situation where you are able to arrive by yourself on some ship on a, what is that? Wow. Anyway, so yeah, the ship blows you in, and here you are, you've arrived at the, at the, at the island, and somehow you've, 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 you've navigated the ship by yourself. Um, but now you and your spouse are both on this island, and what do you do next? You burn those ships. You burn those ships so that there's, you, there's no way out off the island. And that's this beautiful image of marriage because you say, oh, there's no way out. But then I remember thinking to myself, well, Jason, you know, I'm thinking about my parents' divorce and that pain. How does that factor in? And I thought, well, actually, that analogy still lives up. That analogy still lives up because there are choices to our, there are consequences to our choices. It may look like Forcing your spouse to swim to another area. Very sad. Are we a community that can love each other where we are? Are we a community that says, I look for the things in life because of the hardness of hearts, because of unfortunate, the unfortunate truth that things like divorce and unbelief and doubt, these are all things that are a part of life. Are we prepared, church, to be the church for all of us? Are we prepared to walk toward the messes and understand that we all are experiencing God in different ways and we need to be honest with that? Are we prepared to be that kind of church? Let me pray. Thank you, God, for the work that you've done in this congregation. I pray for those of us who have tasted um, divorce in our lives, whether it be in our own marriages or in uh, marriages of parents or friends or family. I pray that as a community we can gather around and do whatever our part would be towards healing and reconciliation and praying for all involved. And Father, I also pray for, um, for those who are struggling with doubt. For those that are struggling with unbelief and wondering if you're really there, I would just pray boldly that you would make yourself known to them. That you would be whatever, that you would have them see you as however you would have them see you. That you would be evident to them. That you would be there. You would not be silent. I just pray all of this on my, um, with all humility in that I don't have the ability to be the savior of anybody. I always have to look to you for who you need to be. 
Lord, we are so grateful and thankful for what you're doing among us and through us. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.